Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, a podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Jen Cutler, a performer, artist, self-taught engineer, who, as per the bio on her site, modifies found objects that are cultural signifiers of power, gender, queerness, and intimacy to create atypical instruments and sculptures. I reviewed a recent work of Jen's on Attention Magazine, Sonified Physiological Indicators of Empathy, where sounds of violence were played to test subjects, alternating with passages of silence, while different physiological factors were measured using sensors on their body so measuring electrodermal activity breath and heart rate and this was then transposed into midi files and given instrumental voices and that resulted in the record what i love about jen's work it draws so much attention to the body the body is often a conduit or a producer of the energy or the information that is transposed into sound. There's this relationship between the body in all of its complexity and bodilessness as well, the removal of certain aspects of human being and biology and placing them in different contexts which leaves the body behind or exemplifies and accentuates our understanding of it. Jen is working on so much concurrently. It's worth going over to Instagram at Jen Cutler and seeing what she's up to. She posts regular in-progress reports of what she's working on and the objects always look amazing. And I had a great chat with Jen. This was awesome. She picked three corkers and I had a great time listening through them before we spoke. Great to get Jen's take on all of them. Head over to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for more information on Jen's picks and links to her music. Head to jencutler.com for more on Jen's work too. No doubt you can hear the rain on the studio. Hope that's more calming than distracting. Anyway, here's Jen Cutler on Crucial Listening. Hello, Jen. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. So you have picked three important records. We are going to talk about them. Before we do, we've got a few of your projects that I want to talk about first. And as I was saying just before we got into this, it's hard work picking which ones to cram into this intro. There's so much that (laughs) piques my interest looking at your social feeds. So let's start with Infrasound and what has been dubbed by others as the fear machine. So can you tell me about what you're presently putting together there? Give me an intro to it. Sure. Um, So ever since I was 
in high school, I was really interested in the idea of there being an infrasonic band or um, <clears throat> a way of generating and writing music that could only be felt and not transduced by the mechanics of the ear as traditional sound works. And I had a, a hypothesis that perhaps regular tertian harmony or um, the way that we conceive of consonance and dissonance in music might still apply to uh, infrasound that we might feel. Mm. So the idea that in traditional music you have a consonant passage, a mounting dissonance, and then some kind of cadence that resolves the dissonance, has it has these very specific psychological properties. It's almost universal that people perceive consonance to be comfortable and dissonance to be a form of discomfort. Mm. And I wanted to see if that would be true for frequencies that we can't hear but we can feel. So next to me, I've got this bizarre box um, that is currently <laughs> stuffed with a ton of soundproofing insulation uh, but at its core, it's a rotary subwoofer. And what what that means is that instead of a traditional speaker that has a, a cone and a magnet, a fixed magnet, and a coil, which electromechanically goes out and in and out and in based on the electric current in the coil, this the limitation of that is that you can only push the cone out so far before it will stop. Uh, uh -huh. It's just a physical limitation of the engineering of how speakers work. And the rotary subwoofer is special because instead of going out and in, it takes the pressure from a, a coil of a speaker and a magnet, and it translates that energy to change the pitch of a fan blade and so the fan is always spinning, and if the fan blades are even, are um, straight up and down and left and right, you know, then it's just pushing air straight, which electrically would look something like direct current, DC. Mm -hmm. um, audio, though, is, is alternating current. It's AC because it's going out and in and out and in. So while this fan blade is spinning at a, a constant speed, the the fan blades change pitch to produce uh, vibrations. And what that means is because there's no limitation on how far out and in it can go, because it can spin constantly, it's able to produce much, much lower frequencies. So that's that's the, the science, the basic outline of the science behind the rotary subwoofer. Um, but it it took a very long time for me to actually get my hands on the parts and um, a, a mostly built one that I was able to tinker with enough to get working. And uh, I built an infrasonic synthesizer patch in Pure Data that I can play with a traditional MIDI keyboard. And it's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrifying. Oh, nice. it's, it's So one of the things I realized off the bat was that the music that we listen to traditionally in the West is all equal temperament for the most yes. part. Yeah. 
And equal temperament, according to physics, is wildly out of tune. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself that our ears have been trained since we were very small to become adjusted to equal temperament, but our bodies haven't. So I figured instead of probably making myself vomit from extreme dissonance, (laughs) 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 I, um, I figured it would be prudent to use a Pythagorean perfect scale, Hmm. which you can't modulate in, but let's be honest. I mean, I don't, I don't intend much to modulate, <laughs> you know, I mean, so, um, yeah, so anyway, I, I actually turned it on and started really testing all of the different intervals and forms of harmony and dissonance yesterday. It was the first time after years and years of uh, sort of obsessing about this concept. Mm. And I was totally stunned because it really works. I felt fear when I played a tritone, and I felt co- comfortable when I played a perfect fifth. Oh wow! And I, I'm, I'm scared that this is all in my head. Maybe like I need to find a <laughs> guinea pig to to test it on. Yeah. My partner was like, "Keep me away from it. I want nothing to do with this." <laughs> um, but I have a an unsuspecting studio visit tomorrow. It's, I might try to lure them in wow okay um but it's 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 completely insane wow so with that test that you're doing tomorrow are you going to tell them the interview your interview are you going to tell them the interval that you're playing or are you going to just be like okay i'm playing something how, how do you feel now just to oh remove yeah, that placebo I can't... effect i can't tell them what i'm doing i i just want to see how they feel yeah and then Afterwards, maybe I'll I'll share the data with them, but I don't want to ruin the the test. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. Because I really thought that maybe you're going to say these experiments were. I don't know. We 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 have that immediate association right between low sounds and unpleasant feelings, and that could purely be because we have such an unrefined handling of low frequencies whenever we feel them, I guess. It's not like someone is ever trying to direct them musically. They just Mm. come at you as a splurge, right? And that's probably never nice. Um, Yeah, I think the other thing that most people don't realise is that the the waveform that's transmitted is really important as to how you feel. For example, low-frequency noise will make you ill. Right, right. But but a low frequency sine wave depends on the frequency. Around seven hertz, it could kill you, sure. Um, but is that, <laughs> is that true? That, wow. Oh, here's what I know. Um, maybe ten years ago, I was working very hard on this project, going down all of these roads that led to nowhere. And one of the things that I was entertaining was the idea of building a tapped horn speaker the size of a room. And so I went and researched the absolute lowest resonant frequency subwoofer driver that I could find, which was actually made by a British company called Precision Devices. And I started a conversation with them, and I tried to explain what I was doing, and 
I wanted to know that either if A, they had any advice for me or if they knew if I could modify one of their speakers to be able to do what I was trying to do. And I got this response (laughs) 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 that was basically telling me that you shouldn't be doing this, you could kill someone. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever, you know. But it turned out, it turns out that, you know, in the wrong hands, it really, it can be dangerous. You have to pay close attention to the SPL and you have to um, be mindful of which frequencies you're actually playing and uh, you live, you learn, (laughs) you know. Um, But supposedly it's true. I can't confirm or deny from experience, but supposedly 7 hertz could interfere with uh, certain mechanisms in your body that allow you to live. Oh, shit, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I don't want to phrase this in a way that sounds like um, drawing your expertise into question, but I've seen... You, you, you relay that story there. Um, you're dealing with very low frequencies with this infrasound project too. Uh, I see that you've also got another one and I, 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 this may be a, a different form that's perhaps doesn't come with the same danger I associate with it, but say microwave, <laughs> microwave energy as well. Do, do you ever have this moment before you turn on one of these machines where you're like, fuck, I hope this is all <laughs> above board. I hope this all goes all right. You know, cause it sounds like, um, uh, I guess you're, you know, dealing with systems that you know what I'm getting at, basically, right? <laughs> Do I? Yes, very much. So um, just just to give you a little bit of background, I'm a completely t- self-taught engineer. Mm. And t- take that as you will, but when I first started working on electronics projects, I had my roommate at the time tie a rope around me just in case I got electrocuted and he needed to pull me off. Okay. So... Either I'm extremely brave or extremely stupid. (laughs) I'm not sure which, but either one is okay with me. (laughs) Specifically for the microwave auditory effect uh, project, it's a project that I've been working on called Hush, and um, it's a series of compositions for a phenomena called um, microwave auditory effect, which was first discovered by... Uh, the the military during World War II when radar was first being used um, as sort of a younger version of itself. And there were these very high-powered radar systems that were there to to track to see if there were any enemy uh, aircraft, you know, uh, coming within a perimeter. The technicians working on these systems reported hearing buzzes and clicking and all of these weird sounds. And they were basically told, you know, oh, you're crazy, oh, you're tired, it's wartime, (laughs) la, la, la. Well, it wasn't being brought into laboratories for study until the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, And the long and the short of it is that when you have a microwave oven, for example, like you're cooking food, that's what's called continuous wave uh, microwave, which means that you're getting, for example, a sine wave. Mm. So the the energy being uh, put out by those devices is consistent. It's it's ongoing. Whereas uh, there's something called pulsed microwave, which is these short bursts of 
energy, no energy, energy, no energy, as the name suggests. So ultimately, when you have continuous wave, you're, you're absorbing the maximum amount of microwave energy. Mm-hmm. Continuous wave is very dangerous and um, don't, you know, this would, if this were a continuous wave, I would actually be crazy and I would actually be hurting people. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like I like my craziness to just be the debatable level, which is which is pulse microwave. <laughs> nice. Um, so, ultimately, with the system that I'm working with, it falls well under the amount of microwave radiation that is allowed legally. Mm-hmm. It because it's pulsed, because uh, the pulses are relatively far away from each other, um, and. It actually, there's some d- discussion about it right now in the scientific communities because it's also far less than a lot of the ultrasonic imaging tools that are being used in medicine and so on. So it, it's arguably less dangerous than a lot of things that are already being used. Um, now, there's all kinds of discussion about are cell phones dangerous? You know, yeah, yeah. there are some people who are more sensitive than other people. So saying that something is safe is, it's not that easy. But what I can say definitively is that there's far less uh, energy being emitted than, you know, say, a lot of imaging tools that are being used in medicine. Uh-huh. Uh, it's certainly not even comparable to a microwave oven. It's not. It's simply not the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to drag it into <laughs> a safety interview um, because obviously there's so much as well conceptually within what you're doing which is actually probably the more compelling part of it than will jen hurt herself um um, but yeah i think also as well because and i've heard you discuss this before you have a very uh candid presentation on your social feeds in terms of what you're working on which i can't imagine is different to what a lot of people actually go through when they're you know, going through a process of trial and error and developing something. But to see it also on show, I think it just brings that, um, the unexpected element of what could happen into greater focus when following your work, which is really cool. But um, I think that's probably why the question just came into my head just now. <laughs> well, thank uh, you. <laughs> well, I'll tell, I'll tell you what, if something does happen to me, I'll, I'll make sure it's live on social media. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get that tweet out far. Yeah. Um, so the the other project that I wanted to to bring up is something I heard you talk about in another interview, which sounded really interesting, called Measures. Um, probably better that you again give it a, a bit of an intro as to to what it is and and where you are with that presently. Um, sure. Hmm. So I guess the best way to explain it is as kind of an extension of my last record, which is called Sonified Physiological Indicators of Empathy. Uh, Effectively, it's a system of measuring uh, three different types of physiological um, phenomena. One is uh, the breath rate, one is the heart rate, and the third is called electrodermal activity, which effectively measures how conductive your skin is. 
which might not seem particularly interesting, except that um, your nervous system causes all of these micro fluctuations in uh, your sweat mechanisms. And so th while you might, you know, an extreme example might be your hands getting clammy. It's mm. not really what we're talking about. We're talking about these very minor fluctuations in uh, the conductivity of your skin based on your uh, emotional state. Mm -hmm. And so um, using these three uh, types of sensors, I can, well, it's possible that anyone can deduce whether or not someone is having a response, mm -hmm. any kind of emotional response. So a lot of times people ask me, oh, well, how do you know the difference between someone being happy or sad? And the answer is I don't. Right. Uh, it's very, it's relatively crude, and effective computing is a huge area of interest for a lot of scientists. And there's an incredible amount of work to be done. But for for my intents and purposes, I just want to see if something evokes any kind of emotional response, which, in the definitions of this system, is considered empathy. So, for example, if um, if somebody witnesses a, hor a horrible act, will they be completely indifferent to it? Mm -hmm. Or will they have a response? And I created an album based on this, which was taking um, small auditory cues of different types of violence and things and uh, measured my own responses to it. And then I sonified that data into the album, but I found this holy grail paper um, which talks about actually scanning music for points where uh, emotion would be, with the probability of emotion being evoked at that point in the music oh, wow. is, is detectable, let's say. And so th there's this AI algorithm you can detect where these points may be, and then set up a structure around that for a sort of experiment to say, okay, well, at one minute 15, there, for example, there's uh, a point which may cause uh, an emotive response, and then the user can have um, these physiological sensors, and it will say, okay, here's 115, was there a change? Mm. Uh, I mean, it's sort of a crude explanation of it, but then in in real time, as this person is experiencing uh, the cue music and their data is being recorded, it's in and of itself generating a a brand new piece of music, and so that piece of music goes on to the next user, and so uh, and so on and so on until the plan is to have an archive of all of the different pieces of music generated by all the different people that uh, use it. And the device itself is a wrist-worn device, not super different from a Fitbit or something like that. And um, yeah, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's got, you know, a headphone jack and you can listen to things and it will, you know, connect to your Wi-Fi to 
send your data off to be turned into music and it'll stream the audio that is your cue set for you and and uh and that's that's the piece measures that's ace i love that i didn't realize actually um that it had that kind of daisy chain element to it so 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 so, so you're saying one person would, would, would wear this device and they would have those don't know the technical term but biomarkers recorded and then that would be the instigator for the generation of that piece of music which then is played to the next person who uses the, de the device is that right exactly yeah i love that that's so cool one other thing i want to mention before we go into your important albums is a driving event that you played for wgxc's 10th anniversary so that was what about I don't know a week ago within the last couple of weeks at the time we're talking um what did you play I think you played as part of a duo right and how was it oh it was it was insane and magical and <laughs> just bonkers uh a little bit of a back of a background story WGXC is a community radio station in uh, a rural part of the Catskills and the upper Hudson Valley of New York State and it was started by pirates, by radio pirates. Oh, nice. And uh, Tom Rowe and Galen Joseph Hunter, uh, the A-team, they, uh, <laughs> they, they moved up from Brooklyn and they started this non-for-profit called Wayfarm, uh, which is basically an evolution of a project space that they ran in Brooklyn called Free 103.9, which was also there. Uh, pirate frequency, I believe, and they uh, made a bid for uh, an, uh, with the FCC for a legitimate frequency, and they've built this beautiful space anyway called Wave Farm, which has all of these transmission art sculptures, and um, they have this beautiful library that's full of all of these rare books about transmission arts and media arts and uh, residency program in the summer for transmission artists. Uh, beautiful studios, uh, two studios, one in at the location of the uh, of Way Farm, the main location, and one in Hudson, New York, across the river. And WGXC is sort of the baby offshoot uh, from Way Farm, that is their community radio station, and it is full of the most bizarre, strange, mm -hmm. unusual. <laughs> stuff because it's a community radio station anyone can apply for a radio show <laughs> um so you've got you know there's the haitian show and and there there's a, a, a there's a radio show that the local mayor in hudson has and <laughs> That's so cool. uh, it's really a, a type of freedom that i feel like most people don't even realize that they would like to engage in mm -hmm. um but in addition to that, there's tons of sound art, and they, uh, you know, they rebroadcast a lot of really interesting stuff, and it's basically um, an outpost in a world that's otherwise like Christian radio and country. So it's it's like you get Christian radio, country, and then you know you've got uh, some crazy sound art, and you're like, what <laughs> what happened? Uh, it's it's really it's really magical. So of course the listenership and the people who are involved with the radio station are as diverse as as the programming. Uh -huh. And 
It was the 10th anniversary of this community radio station, and Galen, Joseph Hunter, the executive director of Wave Farm, really wanted to do something special. And she had this genius idea, which was to um, do an event at a drive-in movie theater where people can be socially distanced, but also be together and have a live event. I mean, the people we got to perform with was... It was awesome. It was like Brian Dewan, who who has these film strips, which I love. You know, we had Anna Frizz, who's uh-huh. this amazing radio artist. We had, what's his name? From the Magnetic Field. Stephen Merritt played a set. Wow. And that was, was awesome. <laughs> I, you know, it was just, it was just, uh, it was hilarious because it was so DIY in the true way that WGXC kind of always will be because of its roots and because it stays true to itself. Um, but it was also like just seem larger than life seeming because we had this huge screen and, um, <laughs> wow. you know, it was, it was really, it was intense. It was a, quite a way to break quarantine, I'd say. But for my piece, <laughs> um, <laughs> for, uh, I worked with Quentin Anawixwo, who is a brilliant uh, writer and filmmaker and photographer uh, she's just um and performer she's, uh we we've been working on a piece together called southern comfort and it's based on uh some texts that she wrote that's part of a book that's going to be coming out and she did a vocal performance of the piece and i wore uh, the the physiological sensors and created a patch so that my uh, my empathetic responses would be sonified in real time to the words that she is saying in the story. Huh. And then we had this video element, which <laughs> this is a whole other uh, <laughs> this whole other craziness. Which um, so are you familiar with the Namjoon Pike Raster Manipulation Unit? I'm not. No. It's nicknamed the Wobulator. So um, it's a CRT TV. CRT cathode ray tube, like the big old box uh, TVs, and the way that those work is is that they've got this tube. It's an electron beam tube that shoots an electron, and from that you get a single point in the middle of the screen. So in order to draw an image, you have uh, two sets of deflection coils, is what they're called, and they're these these metal coils that are wound in this particular shape that are right on top of the tube. And as you apply um, electricity to them, they create an electromagnetic field which will actually drag the electron beam across the screen. So there's one that's a vertical that will drag it left to right, and there's one that's horizontal which will drag it up and down. And that, and that generates what's called a raster, or it moves so quickly that we just see it as an image. Hmm. Um, so, but that's, I mean, that's how an old black and white CRT TV worked. And so with a wobulator, what you do is you just keep adding deflection coils. So you manipulate the electromagnetic field with other electromagnetic fields, and you can put different signals in to manipulate it in such a way that you like. And I, I did a residency at a place called Signal Culture, a phenomenal residency program for media arts. And... They have one of these very old school um, wobulators, and I lost my mind. <laughs> so of course, <laughs> I had to go home and I had to build one. 
and then two and then five and so on but then um <laughs> there was a bit of an issue though because i really wanted a color wobulator and because of the way that color works on uh for for cathode ray tubes is such that the the angle at which the electron beam hits the phosphor on the screen will change the color and so if you manipulate one of uh, color CRT, it doesn't really have the same desired effect. It sort of looks rainbowy because you're sort of randomly hitting the phosphor at different angles right. and you don't really have control. But then I had this this thought like, well, you know, what if you just had three CRTs, three cathode ray tubes, one for each color, and that's what a cathode ray tube projector is. Right. S so um, I started taking apart and you know people are throwing this stuff away i get tons of cathode ray tube tvs from every corner of the universe people are like i don't want this it costs money for me to recycle this i'm like great <laughs> give, allow me give it to me yeah. yeah um but you know and the crt projectors are the same the one that i last modified was literally a hundred pounds so it's you know it's like a small child <laughs> it's like or a, a, a small adult really a yeah. very very large child yeah. i don't <laughs> i'm not around children very often can you tell <laughs> um but anyway so um so i started i start i got my hands on one and i basically instead of having three additional coils i would have three additional coils on three different CRT. So I then had nine channels of control. It was like being drunk. You would turn on, I mean, I would just watch TV and it would be something really boring or, you know, something really silly. Like I used to watch a lot of uh, what, what we do in the shadows while I was working on the CRT projector. And so I would just be watching like Nadja from what we do in the shadows and just wobulating it. And I felt like <laughs> oh I was drunk. God. <laughs> so, um, Anyway, we tried to, we took one of these devices and we controlled the the modulating uh, deflection coils with physiological sensor data per the story, and we created a um, basically a, a, a short film to run through that was of all of these different things that were parts of of the story that Quentin was telling, and then we manipulated them based on the physiological data. So that is the very long version <laughs> of, of that piece. Oh, blimey, that's so cool. Did, it, did anyone, do you know if it was documented? Um, there, there's some documentation. There was uh, a bit of a mishap with uh, the official documentation for video. The audio is all documented. Uh -huh. um, and in fact, I think that's up. Uh, you can find it at wgxc.org. Um, but the the video uh, there there are different people have filmed it independently, but the main uh, filming documentation didn't make it, unfortunately. Oh, I mean, just to hear about it then was plenty. Um, that set my mind alight. Just getting that description. So, um, wow. Well, we should talk about your three important records, Jen. Now you've come up with this list of three and I'm intrigued to know how you thought about the word important in order to come up with that list so was there a way that you considered the word important in order to produce the three records that you did um yes things that proved to be timeless and specifically things that were important to me and my uh, 
my ongoing love-hate relationship with music <laughs> things that kept it kind of into the love side just enough more than the hate side okay cool i'm intrigued to get into that as we go through these so um yeah let's go with one of them which one do you want to talk about first i guess we can just do them in order joseph spence yeah cool good morning mr walker yeah 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 so it's... why did this one make the list it's just perfect <laughs> It's just perfect. It's it's pure joy. Mm-hmm. It's pure joy. I the scatting of the solos, pure joy. Mm-hmm. Messing up all over the place doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. It's just it's it's it emphasizes fun and expression over perfect, precise performance. And, you know, I guess it helps me remember what the actual end goal is in all of this. There's so much focus on things being polished and things being perfect. And sometimes, not in all cases, but sometimes, the more you polish something, the less emotive it becomes. It, it's taken over by the analytical brain to try to engineer a solution to a perceived uh, sonic problem or a songwriting problem. But there is nothing overanalyzed about this, <laughs> this album. No. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's, it seems almost candid. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a live recording yeah i mean there's so i guess there's that but it's like the the most interesting posterity photographs are candid i feel Mm -hmm. like i get a glimpse of the real personality of the performer and the performance and it's not just this outward image of polished produced work and i guess for that time period it's it wasn't that common to have things so polished and produced but at the same time it's just it's just pure pure joy yeah yeah for sure i guess there was a technical limitation in terms of getting things polished and produced in well this is 1972 isn't it i guess things were quite far along in terms of recording audio by that point but this is someone who technical limitations aside clearly does not give a fuck if he's... <laughs> <laughs> he's he's too happy to give a fuck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we should um, lay it out as well in terms of what is being heard. So he's singing. There's acoustic guitar. I mean, that's it. I heard that someone heard him. I think someone who was quite key in his profile being increased thought that there was like two guitars dueling simultaneously when they heard him playing, which. Um, makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, what are the aspects of this record specifically that, you know, when you think over the album now, really jut out as bits that you're like, oh, those are the bits I really love. All of the scatting. Yeah. The scatting is just so insane. It took me a long... I, I think I heard this album probably ten times before I realised he was singing in English. Right, yeah. I did... <laughs> And, you know, you always, or at least I always imagined him, you know, with a a cigar hanging out of his mouth and just like a giant jug of 
some ominous bottle that just is labeled XXX, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's also, it's also totally absurd. I mean, lyrically, it's totally absurd. Like, even the title track, Good Morning, Mr. Walker, I Want to Marry Your Daughter, how many times would you expect you'd say something like that in your life? (laughs) You know? Now I stand here waiting, like... Excuse me, you're taking too long to deliver your daughter to me. It's very, it's just, it's just absurd and bizarre. And I don't know, sometimes I'm really, well, most of the time, I'm really upset by, um, you know, just general misogyny in all things. Mm-hmm. But there are a few exceptions where it's just too good, like <laughs> this or uh, Ludacris. Ludacris can say whatever he wants because he's so clever and funny and uh, I just can't. I can't with Ludacris. He's so good. It's not a great He's list so good. of people who get a pass, Joseph Spence and Ludacris. That's yeah, exactly. Nice. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> what a pet. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No. Reach up in the sky for the hozone layer. <laughs> Fuck's sake. He's, oh, He's a genius. <laughs> well, I, I get this a lot. So, so, um, one artist who came up in my head who I feel like was probably... I don't know if he was channeling him directly, but sure, th- this kind of energy is Beefheart, right? Who also as well has, like, these moments of really eccentric misogyny that um, is delivered uh, in the context, again, just like Joseph Spence, in the context of delirious kind of joy and disco sometimes in like his small wild <laughs> moments and so you know uh so we're kind of we just have this moment where we're like yeah i mean what it's just too he's also singing about flamingos the next line so can we is is it bad or or, or is this just the whirling of someone who's just kind of not on this planet and some of it happens That's to funny. land in this you know maybe not too savory spot is that too forgiving? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I I mean, sometimes it's intentionally posed as being absurd to make a statement. Yes. Although in, in the case of Captain Beefheart, I, I mean, that that's the art of writing the line, I guess. Right. That's <laughs> never really know. Right, yeah. Do you remember how you first heard this Joseph Spence record? I was in college and... Uh, I think I just heard it playing, and I was like, what is that? You know, mm-hmm. Someone in my uh, department was playing it. Did you like it instantly? Yeah, I have I have this sense that anytime I hear something that's just baffling, like, what is that? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's like love at first sight. But for, it's not love, it's just being baffled. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I made some notes of bits that I really liked from this record personally. Oh, tell me I'm curious. So the, the throat clearing in the first track, because that was the first time where I was like what is going on? Uh, <laughs> I was like That's, you can't do that um, but it's so wonderful and also as well there's something quite um, unpleasant about it, like you feel like a lot of mucus is coming up um, it's quite <laughs> all those cigars. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, yeah, that will do it, won't it? Um, this is all fitting together perfectly. Um, there's also uh, 
a point during Oh How I Love My Jesus where it just sounds like that he's probably just throwing his head back. Um, but the effect is that it sounds like that he's just fucked off out the room and you're hearing his voice like <laughs> echoing. You're like, oh, okay, uh, you're taking this song elsewhere. Like there's another place this song needs to be and it's not here, which I, I absolutely love that someone would be so elated with what they're doing that they forget they're recording a record. <laughs> that for me is absolutely splendid. Um, the, the final one that I made a note of was uh, on coming in on a wing and a prayer. There's this very pronounced string, which uh, in which the tuning is absolutely perfect because it, um, in you know our classically Western standards, is thoroughly out of tune. But it <laughs> is basically just like a middle finger every time it comes in, like it knows full well that it's a brash, jutty out pimple. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I just absolutely adore it. I mean, I'm but I'm gonna buy this record because this one was at, uh, just such a freaking delight. I'm so glad you brought this one up on the podcast. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> do Do you have a favorite track? Ah, <laughs> uh, I I really like Marianne, but I love them all. I mean. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I I don't think so. I think one of, maybe one of the things that I took into account when I was picking important records was that the whole record from top to bottom was just gorgeous. Yeah. And so for for these three albums, I think it'll be hard for me to pick a favorite track. At least in the case of Joseph Spence, it's nearly impossible. Let's go for your second important record now, Jen. Which one do you want to go for now? We're going chronologically, right? What does yeah, that make I guess so. One? Yeah, uh, Stephen Layton, Polyphony, Whitaker, Cloudburst, and other choral works. Yeah. So, yeah. Why did this one make the list? It's. It never loses its intensity for me. So there are some albums that I hear the first time and I think, wow, this is amazing. And then I listen to it 400 more times and I'm like, okay, I think I've got it. But <laughs> right. Yeah. This, I heard this album for the first time also in college as a freshman. This is already a long time ago. That's 2004. Mm-hmm. And every time I put it on, I'm just blown away as much as the first time I put it on. And I, I feel like that's so rare. Um, I know it's a little campy to to bring an Eric Whitaker record into the equation, but um, I think that this record in particular is really special because it was conducted by Stephen Layton, and I think that Eric Whitaker is a brilliant composer, no doubt, but I think he might be too close to his own work to be able to conduct it effectively. Right. And he conducts so much of his own work. Right. 
Um, I ugh. the use the use of dissonance on this album is is incredible, and I think mm. that part of what made it makes this album special is that Stephen Layton took all of the parts where it got super dissonant, and you know he he would pause on it just a little bit longer so you could, it would really sink in mm. and there was always some kind of like minor decrescendo just to just to accent that moment which seems like it wouldn't be that big a deal like if it was a rock album or something maybe it wouldn't but because it's choral music it it makes all the difference in the world what well, do you have any thoughts on why that is was it about choral music that enables that to to be more pronounced well i guess in a sense it's it's much more minimalist than rock music so Mm. i mean most of these pieces are just chorus there's no piano there's there's no other instrumentation so you're really going to hang on every every harmony you know with rock music there are all these compositional tools you have the song of course and the harmonies and such but there's also the these timbral choices like which symbols is the drummer going to use and uh-huh. and and what pedals is the guitar player going to use and if there's a distortion what kind of distortion is it and people get into this like nitty-gritty about the very the timbres oh with, with the solo there's like a boost and it's got this eq on it and yeah. it's just it's very um Tamper is such a big part of the composition, in my opinion. And then when it comes to this choral music, there are different limitations in play. And that really pushes the written harmonies, melodies, and timing to the forefront because that's all there is. Yeah. There aren't really timbral choices to be made. There's no, like distortion pedal right, <laughs> for <yeah>. the choir <laughs> although now you know i'm just gonna write that in my book uh <laughs> no <laughs> my idea book um but you know you see what i'm getting at so yeah, i think totally. that since you have less choices to make in that regard i think it makes the choices that you make much more important mm-hmm. yeah um that was again another thing that i put in my notes was that there are some harmonies that it just loiters on which are um absolutely perfect like really poised tense kind of scrunched harmonies a lot of the time where it's like every conventional fiber of me wants it to slot into something more aligned and it's like nah Mm. yeah (laughs) yeah his he his his music is the ultimate and just never resolving Mm. and you hear it because of how um, adjusted we are to Western music, you expect certain things like the four-three suspension, mm-hmm. uh, which yeah. I don't know how familiar you are with composition. But the four-three suspension, you expect to resolve, and he just late leaves it. He's like, no, nope, here we are, <laughs> and it's it's like it's almost gimmicky, but it's so good. Totally, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. Well, it you know again and this is a very gimmicky thing to say but to um leave those things untied is such a you're you're blowing open a whole new palette of like yearning and longing and you know sort of those horrid belly feelings that are like something ain't right um Mm. so this is 
I, I don't know how much you know about this album generally. Is this like a a compendium of choral works, like disparate choral works, or is it like a suite that was designed to be together? Because it feels like a very like together listen. I don't think they're part of the same. I mean, they're definitely from earlier in his career, but I'm not sure. I, I have no idea. Hmm. Um, you mentioned actually that uh, Stephen Layton's uh, conducting here was a key facet. Have you heard alternate versions of these works? Like any of these works where a different tact has been taken? Like what is it that makes Stephen's input so pronounced? Okay. So my favorite example is the track Sleep, which is one of my favorite tracks on this album. If you go on YouTube, you can find tons of versions of Sleep where Eric Whitaker conducts. And there, after you've heard Stephen, I'm so glad actually that you heard Stephen Layton's first because <laughs> if you listen to the Whitaker conducting it, it's just flat and dead. And, you, and I'd think to myself, how is it possible that this brilliant piece of choral music could be flat and dead? Right. <laughs> <laughs> how is it possible? And, you know, you, you find, like, community choirs and stuff doing it, too, and they... It's, there's something... There's a piece of magic about how Stephen Layton conducts it. I can't really express other than he extends it where it needs to be extended, and he lets it fall short where it needs to fall short. Hmm in a way that even Eric Whitaker can't. Yeah, isn't that nuts? Like, I, I mean, I, I, on one hand, I totally get it, but just the premise of someone composing something which has so much dormant emotional potential that when it comes to presenting it, they just blow right by. That's so interesting to me. Yeah. I feel, I mean, I feel that in my work too. When you spend so much time building an instrument and then figuring out what it's good for and figuring out how to play it, and then by the time you actually get to playing it, it's like, I just feel confused. Right, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. I guess it's the same premise as mastering engineers to a certain extent, right? Where it's like... Exactly. Yeah. So when you think back to like first encountering this record what are the most prominent memories that come to mind of listening to it so like where are you um yeah what are sobbing the in my dorm room right sobbing <laughs> sobbing just just sobbing in my dorm room nice wearing it in headphones mm -hmm. and quietly sobbing while i walk to class <laughs> putting it on headphones and quietly sobbing when I walk from class. Are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> you sure? No, no. Yeah, totally. No, it's good. great. I'm good. You? Nothing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No. So, um, yeah, I mean, my earliest memories of that would be sobbing. And then it, it's, it's, it's lived with me throughout the years. Just, I remember, like, courting people not a whole lot of people maybe one or two people and we would be in this sort of blissful beginning stage of a budding relationship and and 
making mixes for each other, and I think that there is always at least one track from this CD wow. on those mixes. God, that's... Because it's just sharing something beautiful with someone, you know? Jen, your third record, what is it? And tell me a bit about why it's important as well. Okay, uh, the third record is by Opeth. It is called Blackwater Park. And it's just been with me for a very long time, and I love it so much. Michael Ackerfeld is unbelievably talented in songwriting, performance the way that he thinks about the guitar is just stunning mm. f from how I think about it and I think that one of one of the things that really impresses me about this album is that it's not just a metal record mm -hmm. I, I grew up on metal and industrial music um, if you couldn't tell from how well adjusted I am <laughs> today <laughs> that is that is how that came to be um and this album is really special because it just it has this incredibly extreme dynamic range mm. it's harsh and technical but it's extremely emotive and musical and complex and its complexity doesn't take away from the emotion of it where I feel like in a lot of albums metal and otherwise the more technical it gets the less emotionally relatable it is mm -hmm. and I feel like this album hit it right on the head it's very very hard to create something that's super polished in terms of songwriting and production and instrumentation and vocal delivery while being able to feel goosebumps as a listener every mm -hmm. time. I feel like that's very rare, especially in metal. Yeah. And, um, and it's just masterful. Um, it's, it's, in some ways, it's kind of the complete opposite of the Joseph Spence record. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yes. But he got away so. with it. Sure. Opeth got away with it. They, um, they have sections that are just so delicate. You know, because what is what is like a really brutal uh, metal album? I mean, I absolutely love Meshuggah. A lot of their stuff falls in that category. Is that brutal? Sure. I don't know. Sure, maybe. I think Meshuggah is pretty brutal, but I guess what I mean to say is that after a point, you sort of lose perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really unique to have these really intimate moments these really vulnerable moments on a record like Blackwater Park where you have um, 
these acoustic guitars and the, this beautifully sung, not screamed or growled, but sung uh, harmonies, and it's just feels very raw. And then all of a sudden, you just get this avalanche of this, <laughs> you know, the chugging uh, speed-picked guitars and the distortion and the drums and yeah it's to, to me that the dynamics are greater than the sum of its parts is he doing all the vocals as well all of them god you have to i know double right? take that don't you it's crazy pants <laughs> <laughs> this dude does all of the vocals. He does all of the vocals. Yeah, that's nuts. And he flips on a dime, doesn't he, as well? Like, um, exactly. He's, he's got it going on. Um, How does he do it? He's still doing it, too. Well, I was going to ask, do you still keep pace with what they're doing? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, I, you know, I follow them every every now and again. I get some thing, you know, oh, Opeth tour, da-da-da. And I'm like, all right, you get them. You go get them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it feels like one of those bands, because I tuned into them around Ghost Reveries. That's the one that I really knew. Oof, that's a good one. Yeah, you're a fan of that one as well. That feels like it's mining the same kind of terrain, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ghost of Perdition. Yeah. I think it's Beautiful. a good sign if uh, a song is still in your head or you can recall the melody like 12 years since you last heard it. Um, yes. That's and a, an extremely technical, melodic, all kinds of crazy drum beats happening and you can recall every single part. That's what I mean. Yeah. It's like, it's never like this added stuff that's sort of just... Like, oh, it's another part. Like, you're like, okay, well, the, you know, metal songs are 17 minutes. And you're like, yeah, but you're going to remember every single minute of this 17-minute <laughs> <Yeah>. song. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the the, the clean, very delicate bits. Um, one thing I find, and I think Opus do it in a way which I think is very, very particular. Like, I can't think of maybe any other bands where it sounds in this way. But there's something that could verge on melodrama in like how it's 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 very clean like and very like it feels super earnest. I don't know. Is there a balance that's being struck there? Because I know with metal as well, this seems to be something in metal where you can have these big brutal sections, and then it goes into a clean bit, and you're like, whoa. Um, it gets very cheesy. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, is that something you encountered as a metal fan? And Oh, yeah. yeah. There's no metal without cheese. <laughs> it's the skeleton of metal. Does that always sat, like, well with you? Is there any sort of, like, um, part of you that's like, oh, no? I think that of all of the metal that I um, was exposed to when I was young, this was, especially in terms of the softer parts, far less cheesy, just from my perspective. And I think that the reason is, well, okay, firstly, because there's no gated reverb on anything, so we can just strike that right out the gate. But yeah. um, 
yeah, you know, I mean, like, if it were the 80s and everybody was wearing vests and leather pants and riding motorcycles and... Oh, sure. Then, you know, I mean, this isn't man of war <laughs> That's what I mean to say. It's true enough. Um, but uh, I think because his delivery is just so honest sounding mm-hmm. and it's yeah. it's like no frills it's it's clean it it's it feels very close up yeah like it almost feels like he's whispering in your ear yeah there's this unbridled intimacy which is kind of what i mean because i feel like with metal intimacy is usually not really part of the equation it's br- brutality and and look at how um I endure this brutal art form and I don't even flinch. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you listen to to Opeth and you're given the opportunity to have intimacy as part of that uh, ecosystem. And to me, that's what makes it really unique. Yeah, because what's that song on this one where it, um, I was listening to it just before we spoke... But there's one, I think it's kind of the second half of the record, where it starts really acoustic and really dry. And there's a point where yeah. it's just his voice. What, which one is that? It's that's. I think that's my favorite track on this album, if I had to guess. So actually, I think this is sort of embarrassing, but this was in the days of, like, Napster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, it's the fifth track, I think. <laughs> Let me find out what it's called, because to this day, it is untitled in my library. It is... Five. Dirge for November. Am I sure that that's the track? Let's find out. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's my favorite track on that album. Nice. It really, even on this, like, first listen, I was like, whoa. You know, it's not like you haven't been introduced to delicate moments before that, but it's like that's a new bar in terms of how much he's willing to strip off in the context of this record. It's really cool. Um, so was this the first Opus record you heard? Yes. And did have you traveled back forward? A little bit. Um, I do. I like Ghost Reveries a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, Damnation and Deliverance is pretty good. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it, it might just be because it was the first Opeth record that I had that it really sticks the most. I mean, I listened to it probably hundreds of times over the 20 years that I've had it. And you st- still listen to it now, yeah? Uh, yeah. Uh, after I get in a fight <laughs> with somebody that I care about, sure. I'll listen to some <laughs> Opeth to blow off some steam. Oh, yeah. Nice. bring up actually something that you said before we went into these important records which is your love-hate relationship with music uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
thank you for coming on the podcast by the way i'm glad i caught you on a on a good day in that respect uh <laughs> but uh, maybe i'm interpreting that too broad brush but what do you mean it's a very blunt what framing of that mean? question sorry <laughs> no that's that's fine that's fine um what do i mean i think that to be perfectly honest if it wasn't for music when i was growing up i wouldn't have made it hmm. i mean i wouldn't have made it survival wise not i wouldn't have made music and i think that when you're young and you face certain types of circumstances you develop defense mechanisms that serve you well in those moments uh, but as you get older and the same threats aren't present those defense mechanisms continue to work which will actually uh, impede your ability to function as an adult well mm-hmm. where am i going with this <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see so i think that part of it is that i used a lot of music when i was growing up to reinforce certain defense mechanisms and uh, sort of an escapist kind of way and mm-hmm. also to try to help toughen myself up mentally and uh not feel quite so alone which i think is common for a lot of young people um but you know i also really relied on it uh, as part of my identity mm-hmm. and the closer i clung to it for my identity the more i got lost in it and really sort of lost any grasp of my actual identity uh abstract as it is right yes <laughs> so i think that um i went through some periods where uh i gave up music completely or tried to anyway uh there was a year in my life where i quit everything and became a farmer no way Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I went back and forth on it very very hard. Um I had a couple of these bouts of of trying to figure out how to distance myself from music. And I think that thankfully I've found peace with it in the last 5 years I haven't had that experience. I mean, it's just been more or less all all that i um do but it's balanced with other things so my entire identity isn't resting on listening to music or what music i enjoy or what mm-hmm. kind of music i make if any you know um i think for me that separation is important uh anyway it was mostly a joke to say uh <laughs> love hate relationship with music <laughs> at the end of the day it's all love but <laughs> you just have to make sure the lenses in front of your face are set as such so that you can see it for what it is beautiful um and if you really want to dig into say one of these important records or something you really like listening to do you have a favorite setup for doing that or somewhere you like to be, a way to listen to it, a time, a day, anything like that? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that what I like about it is how flexible it is in that regard. Mm-hmm. It's always with me. I don't 
I mean, these records I don't have to actually listen to. They'll play back in my head. I've heard them so many times yeah. I can just turn them on and hear them. So I kind of think of it like they're always with me. Wicked. Um, well, Jen, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for talking through three highly eclectic selections and three that I've enjoyed loads in prep for this and talking to you about so thank you once again oh my gosh thank you so much for having me this has been really fun so glad and to everyone listening see you next time goodbye bye bye